2: One is the Master's in New Arts Journalism that we've been telling you about from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Uh, The deadline, it is almost here. If you want to learn how to write about the arts and culture, if you want to learn how to write criticism, there is not a better place to study it. It's a two-year program, and uh, it's in Chicago. So what's better than that? Go to SAIC.edu slash longform. That's SAIC.edu slash longform. Get that application together and get it in. It is worth it. Also worth it. A podcast recommendation for you. It's called Pregnant Pause. It's produced by Zach Rosen. He's a uh, independent radio producer in Detroit. And it is the story of he and his wife, Shira, deciding whether or not to have kids. It's great and intimate and heartfelt. And uh, I think you should listen to it. Go to pregnantpausepodcast.com or search for it wherever you are listening to this show, which starts now. Hello, and welcome to the long form Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff
3: from Atavist, joined by Max Linsky, who's making some adjustments to the levels,
2: and Aaron Lammer. Hey. Hey, guys. What's up, you guys? Just adjusting levels over here.
4: Max looks like he has not slept in uh, three days.
2: I haven't. It's a, It's not a look. It's my new life.
4: Max, why haven't you been sleeping?
2: The, I was working on a podcast uh, about Richard Simmons, and, it, and it's done now.
4: Are you going to go to sleep now?
2: I thought that I was going to, but I don't think I actually am. I thought it was done, and it's not totally done.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, who is on the show this week? This week I talked to Sheila Kolhatkar, who is currently a staff writer for The New Yorker, She was at Bloomberg Business Week. But the thing we talked about most, I think, is the book that she wrote, which is called Black Edge, which is about the pursuit by various authorities of uh, the man she calls the most wanted man on Wall Street. Uh, His name is Stephen Cohen, and he uh, ran a hedge fund called SAC. Um, And she spent years basically getting inside the investigation of him to try to figure out what that hedge fund did and what the government was discovering about it.
4: She's um, one of those journalists that I feel like has kind of the Scooby-Doo effect where there's some person who's like, hey, I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you.
3: <laughs> yeah, there's someone th- sitting in a mansion, you know, out on in the Hamptons right. who's just cursing her name <laughs> every day as she like turns over another stone. I mean, it's really relentless. If you read the book, like her reporting is absolutely relentless. Does she feel close to him? We talked about what it's like to have a subject like that and to sort of know so much about them. Uh, and But obviously he was never going to talk to her, uh, even though she tried really hard. So, yeah, organizing her life around someone who is never going to uh, respond. <laughs> is uh, It's an interesting journalistic phenomenon for sure.
2: Well, speaking of um, actually getting to talk to somebody, I feel like if we're going to have Sheila on the show, I just want to tell you guys a little story about Sheila, which is that... Right when we started Longform, like early, early days before this podcast even existed, Sheila sent me an email and had uh, some thoughts on the website, and we went and met for coffee, and she was just like, really nice, gave me some tips. That was a nice thing that she did, and now I'm saying thank you. Thank you, Sheila.
4: Speaking of people who've supported the show and uh, the site Longform from early on, MailChimp. They have been with us for years. This would not be possible without them. If you are thinking about starting a project, big or small, why don't you just set up a mailing list so that when it grows, you'll know who people are, and you won't have to pay for it until it hits a certain size. So it's a win-win. Thanks, MailChimp. Here's
2: Evan with Sheila Kolhatkar.
3: Sheila, welcome to the
5: podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you.
3: Thanks for coming in. Um, I have already told you how much I love this book. And I know that you worked in the financial industry, and I'm interested to know how you got to the point where you felt like you could tackle this kind of topic in book form. So I wanted to sort of start by finding out a little bit about how you did get into journalism and what was your work in the financial industry originally?
5: So I worked as an analyst at two very small hedge funds that no one, um, I assure you, very few people have actually heard of. It was not something I had intended to do. I totally fell into it by accident. I uh, finished school, was kind of interviewing for media jobs, but didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I was temping a few days a week to, just to make money while uh-huh. I was figuring out what to do with my life. And I got sent into this small hedge fund to temp and basically answer the phone. And the woman running the fund just took a liking to me over a few weeks that I was working there a couple of days a week. And she convinced me to stay and sort of taught me the business. And I mean, it was a really interesting crash course in so many things for me, Uh, just sort of gender politics and the unfairness of trying to be a woman in a very male industry and high finance and uh, Wall Street and money and the economy and all this stuff. And I really didn't know anything. I had no idea what I was doing. And I was trying to learn it on the fly, which I did really enjoy in a way. It was this sort of challenge. But um, I kind of knew the whole time that I didn't want to stay in that business. And I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. But the money was really good. So I would kind of you know, I'd say, oh, I'm gonna quit, I'm gonna leave, I'm gonna do this, that, and then I'd you know, I'd get a bonus in January and I'd think, Oh, it's so stupid to walk <laughs> away from this. I should stay. But you know, um, it was it was hard though. I wasn't very happy. I wasn't very good at the job, even though I found it sort of interesting to learn about it. It was um you know, it required making quick decisions about what to do uh, with other people's money. Uh-huh. And I am a very cautious, careful, thoughtful person the thought of making a, a mistake actually keeps me awake at night. Like it's a really upsetting thought. And so having to just sort of look at the market and look at the news or see something, some development and then have to make a snap decision about should we buy, should we sell, I found that incredibly stressful. And in fact, that is um, that does not make you a good trader. I mean, the people who do well at those jobs are people who have a huge tolerance for risk and who are not emotional about what they're doing. I mean, you have to be very dispassionate and yeah. kind of cool under pressure. And I was just like a basket case. So... You know, uh, after nine eleven, things on Wall Street got pretty bad, and I had moved to a slightly larger fund at that point, and they just started laying people off, and I was one of the first people to go, actually, and suddenly, it was this great moment to escape.
3: Mm-hmm. And you thought of it as an escape? You weren't? Uh, you hadn't at that point said like, okay, maybe i maybe, maybe I'll do this for. Maybe I've
5: cut out for this. No, in fact, I was plotting to my departure constantly. So it was, uh. it was. Per- I mean, I I made the decision not to try and find another job, and I'd certainly had people, you know, approach me and stuff, and I was like, no. I had kind of decided I wanted to go into journalism at that point, uh, but I still didn't really know what I was doing, and I kind of took some time off and I traveled and worked on a few freelancy things, worked on like a travel guidebook and went all over Southeast Asia with my then boyfriend, who's now my husband. Uh-huh. Um, and it was it was great and uh, also a bit scary. And then when kind of all that settled down and I came back, I went and I ended up getting an entry level kind of fact checkery job at the New York Observer. Mm-hmm. And um, Peter Kaplan was the editor at that time. And I'm um, I walked in, and he kind of was like, oh, my God, another like another wannabe writer in my office. But as soon as he heard about my whole background and what I'd been doing, he became very intrigued. And he was like, oh, you worked at a hedge fund? Like, you worked on Wall Street? That's really uh, interesting. I don't have any of that. I have all these people here who are interested in arts and, you know, real estate and different things. But there was no one who really understood the financial world. Yeah. And uh, – I kind of didn't want to think about that anymore. I wanted to write about much cooler, more exciting things. But the fact is, I was—I was sort of had this expertise, and so um, I did do some business stuff for them. Uh, but I wrote about a lot of other things too. I ended up being like a kind of a culture reporter at The Observer, and I got to write a lot of really fun, just crazy, exciting stories. Um,
3: and was Peter Kaplan or, or other editors there? Were they trying to steer you towards, hey, can you do stories about Wall Street? We don't have anyone else who really knows this stuff.
5: They definitely were a little. However, um, at the same time that I think Peter recognized how important that world was and it continues to be to kind of the audience he was interested in um, reaching, he also was not personally that fascinated by it. So it was interesting. Mm. He He would kind of push me. But then the fact is we all knew, you know, he really loved stories about media, about kind of big intellectuals, about socialites. So everyone wanted to do the kind of stories that would really get his attention and that would get a lot of attention from readers. So I was always trying to find a fine line or a place where the two worlds intersected. And um, almost one of the first pieces I did there just completely uh, came together by accident. Um, An editor there suggested uh, I go and do a piece about... Jack Welch's new wife. So he, Jack Welch was the um, head of GE, a very, very famous corporate titan, right?
3: He wrote a business book that many yes. people yep, yep like cite sort of, for like management.
5: Yes. I think like business students still probably read his books and um, corporate celebrity, basically. And he had had this very high profile, very messy divorce. And he was getting remarried to a woman who had been the editor of the Harvard Business Review. Her name was Susie Wetlaffer. And she was this very, Uh, yeah, she was a very, like, bubbly character. And they were in the newspaper because they had signed a book deal to write a book together, like, management advice or whatever. And they got a lot of money for the book. And my editor at the Observer was sort of like, I think I went to him and said, well, should we do a piece about Jack Welch? Typical bad idea for me. And this editor was like, no, she's the story. Go do the story about her. And um, I just sort of called her up cold, and she was extremely nice and sort of took my call and was very intrigued about my whole hedge fund background. And she sort of thought, wow, you're, this is so interesting. You worked at a hedge fund and now you're doing this. And she invited me to Boston huh. to kind of spend the day with her in their stunning townhouse in the middle of Boston. And I spent the day with her and she was literally preparing for her wedding. And it was going to be this huge kind of society type wedding and uh, they were trying to merge their families, and they were in this stunning townhouse that was filled with just like magnificent artwork that you know you would expect to see in the Museum of Modern Art. And I was there with my tape recorder, just kind of drinking it all in. And then I went back to to my little desk, at The Observer, and on the upper east side, and I like wrote up this story. And um, you know, it was it was just a crazy story. Uh, and she, w- you know. I don't think she liked it very much. Unfortunately, you know she, Did but she give was more just, access
3: than she meant to. I think so, of?
5: and I didn't even. I mean, but the story was a huge hit. Like everybody apparently been trying to get an interview. Oh, with really? Her she'd said no to everyone, but little nobody me just stumbled, somehow wormed her way in there. But also, she you know she was not happy afterwards, and that was like a an important lesson too, because that's always an important part of the profile writing process. It's sort of like oh, the person reacts afterwards to whatever you've written. Yeah. And of yeah, often at the Observer people were not happy with what you wrote. <laughs> so it was and it, which was a horrible feeling and I would get really upset. But um but yeah, I remember Peter just loved the story and um and after that I was given a little more freedom to kind of write about things that interested me. Oh. And uh and I wrote a lot about sort of a culture, world and authors and intellectuals and media figures and um it was a very fun, interesting uh crash course and
3: then did you did you jump straight to business week from there or did you have a have something in between
5: so i then uh went to condé nast portfolio which oh was, i forgot about that i know it's so easy to forget about that about portfolio. that portfolio but little, so, <laughs> little portfolio little sweet little portfolio um so Condé Naz had this, what I think is still actually a very good idea, which was they would describe it as, oh, it's going to be the New Yorker meets Fortune, mm-hmm. which, of course, is probably what every magazine says it wants to be. But, um, you know, it was like 2006, 2007. Um, but they were going to launch this glossy, flashy new business magazine. It was, It was going to be a monthly. It was going to do business journalism in this like really deep intellectual kind of literary way, but also have all the glitz of like Vanity Fair and beautiful photo spreads. And it was such an intriguing idea. And they were going around and just sort of poaching people all over New York to staff this thing. They offered me a job and they were hiring people months before the magazine was even going to start publishing. They supposedly wanted everyone to kind of come in and help shape the magazine together. And it was very exciting. So I went over there and um, that was interesting. (laughs) Interesting. The really, the biggest thing that happened was just as the magazine was launching, the financial crisis happened. And of, there's no way you could really time or predict that. I mean, it was exactly the moment when I think that business journalism actually became really, really interesting. Hmm. Because um, prior to the financial crisis, a lot of business journalism was just rah-rah CEO as rock star kind of puffy – Boosterism, yeah. You know, the stock market was shooting up and there was like a tech boom and the CEOs were the new royalty. And um, I was not that into that. It just didn't seem that interesting or appealing to just write these puffy stories about CEOs being rock stars, honestly. And um, I was always trying to get away from it. But, you know, suddenly the financial crisis happened and it was like all this stuff that had been hidden from view came out into the open. Mm hmm. And it was like, oh, this was actually all kind of a big facade. And actually there's all this like fraud and kind of stealing and manipulation and corruption and all these other things going on underneath the whole shiny rock star surface. And and that really also, I think, demonstrated to people how connected business stories are and stor- anything to do with money, how connected those stories are to everything else going on. I mean, really almost everything that happens in our world if you trace it back to its source, it's a it's money is yeah. the root of it, you know. And so the financial crisis was an incredible opportunity for business journalism, just the way the Trump administration is an opportunity for uh, political reporting. I mean, it it really it was like, okay, this is like an urgent, important story. There's all this stuff we need to expose or tell the public about,
3: and sort of so ex- explain what these things even are. Like what you happened? say, yeah, CEO rock stars. And there was also this, because later you wrote this story about hedge funds for Business Week, where I remember, because I've read it very recently, that the CEOs, these, these heads of hedge funds were portrayed themselves as rock stars, but in a manner, they are, they are rock stars and their stars are also fading very fast in the way that many rock stars, stars will fade as they, uh, there's sort of a rise and fall narrative that wasn't part of the original like rock star Wall Street person that after the crash sort of became apparent.
5: Totally. And um, they had been celebrated largely for just making an insane amount of money. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, that is very impressive to go and make yourself $900 million a year or whatever it is. That's a very impressive thing. But I, I felt a little uncomfortable with the, just the pure idea of just worshipping them just because of that fact. I didn't think that was really enough of a reason <laughs> to just treat them all as royalty Um but, yeah, so the financial crisis did, you know, revealed a lot of this stuff. But, of course, um, the, the just at that moment when business journalism became super important and urgent and interesting, uh, w- you know, media business also entered like a new phase of just terrible decline. So portfolio didn't make it.
2: Did
3: you – I'm always curious. If when you were there, did you think uh, this is not going to last? Because it was a crazy big spending place that so they put a ton of money in did you think, like, I'm just going to learn what I can here and, like, I'm expecting this to go away? Or did you think, no, this is, like, the business magazine of the future?
5: I think I was not, first of all, senior enough there to really be aware of quite how the money was being spent. But, yes, there was an awareness of the fact that, uh, you know, these enormous kind of um, uh, over-the-top photo shoots and all these things were being commissioned and people were being flown to Dubai, like, business class and all this stuff and um, I mean I was aware of that going on and I certainly remember thinking wow I I mean if I were running something not that I want to ever really but um, if I were I would I would probably be much more cost conscious like just the fact flying business class just on its own seems like such an insane waste of money to me I I just don't even I mean there are times when maybe you want to do it if you're flying overnight or something but it just seems so crazy to spend money when you didn't need to yeah um so that did it did seem a little over the top. But in the context of what was going on, that was sort of the last gasp of the magazine industry mm-hmm. being that way. Mm-hmm. So that is very much how things were for a really long time at a lot of those glossy magazines. So in that context, I don't think it seemed that weird.
3: Yeah. So then from there, you're writing for different magazines.
5: I had like a uh, kind of a contributor deal at Time Magazine Mm -hmm. and at New York. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a bunch of really interesting stories for both of those places.
3: You wrote a story about Bernie Madoff's wife that is so sad. It's sort of like about whether or not you should feel sympathy for her. And in the end, it just feels terrible to read.
5: (laughs) There were so many different little weird tensions that came together in that story because... uh, It's very tempting. I think she was very vilified in the press. There was so much just like nasty hatred of Bernie Madoff and all the tabloids and all the media. And people just love publishing these really mean, like unflattering photos of her. And and she certainly was enjoying the lifestyle that was being financed by his enormous fraud that he was committing. However, it's true that after, you know, I spoke to a number of her friends and um, reporting that piece. And of course, One of them kind of said to me, you don't understand our generation. I mean, she was like a a wife who did not have her own outside employment. And if her husband came home and told her to sign some papers, she signed them. She didn't know, you know, Mm -hmm. and I, I had always felt like that excuse was very thin, like, oh, I didn't know. But it's true that she generationally, she was just part of that era when wives were not involved in the family finances. And if your husband seemed like a successful... Wall Street executive, and you had no reason to think otherwise. You probably would just believe it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was sad. It was sad. So much carnage, yeah. that story.
3: Well, I, I brought it up partly because that felt like a uh, it would sort of presage the idea of, like, having to report around someone because she's not, as far as it's not clear the piece, but, like, it doesn't seem like she talked to you for the piece. And so it was a matter of trying to find these people that went to high school with her yes. and, and Was that something that came naturally to you or seemed daunting at the time?
5: It was definitely difficult. I mean, I remember spending hours. uh, It was one of the first pieces I wrote for New York Magazine, so I was really determined to do a good job on it. That was a strong motivator. Um, But I remember traveling somewhere in Manhattan to one of her former classmates uh, who I'd found through some online forum to get a copy of their – I think it was their high school yearbook. I might be remembering slightly wrong. But – and I remember – and he, you know, he wanted this thing back when I was done with it. And I remember just going through it and it was literally just like dialing up these total strangers. But I had actually quite a bit of success doing that. Like a lot of them had really strong opinions. And I spoke to this one who had literally seen Ruth the day that Bernie was arrested or the day before. You know, It was this remarkable little breakthrough I had. Mm-hmm. Um And a couple of people I called were really upset about what had happened with Bernie. And um, I think that they got this call from me and they hadn't been called by any other reporters. And they felt this cathartic release in just talking to me about it and sharing their feelings. And that ended up being a lot of the story was these people just unloading a little bit on me because they were traumatized by what was going on and hadn't had a chance to really – share that and unburden themselves. So it was an interesting experience. I mean, um, but those are really valuable skills, obviously, to be able to just call people. I mean, I feel like so much of journalism is moving away from that. But that's, you know, at the core of every story, it's people and their impressions and experiences and testimonies. And um, it was really helpful to learn how to do that.
3: Yeah, yeah. And also going through the steps to find those people that no one had contacted before, because that's what I feel like, I asked if it was daunting. I mean, it's just reporting. It's literally like the description of reporting. But at the same time, I personally am intimidated by stories that everyone is all over. Like at that time, the Madoff story was the center of the universe It was on the front page of the New York Times. And so the idea of like, okay, what what can I find here that's not been found? And then to get to this layer of people that really wanted to talk about it, but no one ever called them up and said, what do you think about Bernie Madoff? You know? Learning that is is such an interesting part of the process of being able to do something like later write about someone like Stephen Cohen.
5: Yeah, it was extremely helpful. I, I, I honestly can trace it back to a lot of the instruction and guidance I got from my colleagues at The Observer. It was mm-hmm. just like pick up the phone, just call, make the call, just do it. And, of course um, – there is always that very common feeling of like phone dread. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh God, I gotta call this person. But once you start it and it starts to work, that's very exciting.
2: Hey, it's Max. I'm gonna put these guys on hold for a second and tell you a little bit about some sponsors that are making today's show possible. First up, uh you heard at the beginning of the show that I'm a little tired. I've been a little busy lately but thanks to Blue Apron, I've still been eating great. That's because with Blue Apron, for less than 10 bucks a meal, you can get these easy-to-follow, seasonal recipes, along with pre-portioned ingredients, delivered right to your door. No more overspending at restaurants. No more, like, greasy, disgusting takeout. With Blue Apron, you can prepare delicious, memorable meals yourself in under 40 minutes. And uh, don't take my word for it. On the memorableness of these meals, here are some that are available right now. Salmon piccata with orzo and broccoli. Pork chops and miso butter with bok choy and marinated apple. How about a little veggie chili and baked sweet potatoes with crispy tortilla strips? It's great food, and it's sourced from the right places. And right now, if you go to blueapron.com longform, that is blueapron.com longform, you can get your first three meals free with free shipping. You're going to love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So do not wait. Go to blueapron.com slash longform. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Also sponsoring the show today, Stamps.com. You know that you can get uh, all this stuff on demand in your life, right? Like this podcast, on demand. Your uh, TV, on demand. Your movie's on demand. Even your food, like with Blue Apron, on demand. So why do you still have to go to the post office? You don't. Stamps.com does everything you can do at the post office, but you can do it on demand from the comfort of your own home, Really, literally anything you can do with the post office, you can do with stamps.com. But the most important thing, the thing that all of us need to do, buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Just using your own computer and printer, it makes everything so easy. I myself have used stamps.com, and uh, I'm one of those people. I kind of like punt. I'm a little bit of a procrastinator. Letters will pile up. I will not send people things I should send them. Stamps.com makes it impossible not to just do it because it's so easy. It's right there in your computer. (laughs) the files are in the computer. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is you should try stamps.com and uh, maybe you should try using the special code longform because you're going to get a free week trial and you're going to get postage and a digital scale. So go to stamps.com and before you do anything else click on that little radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in longform that's stamps.com enter code longform. Stamps.com never go to the post office again. Now let's get back to Evan and Sheila.
3: So then we still haven't gotten to Business Week. How
5: did know, you end up I know. Sorry, week? this is so long. No, no, this is, um, this is great. So, yeah, Business Week. So um, when Bloomberg bought Business Week, Josh T. Wrangel was hired and brought in to kind of reinvent the magazine. And he was kind of going around picking people to bring in to try and totally remake this. And I think um, he had a great idea, which is he wanted people who were not just from business journalism world. He wanted people, yeah, from New York magazine or from the times or from all different places who could try and do business journalism at another level. I mean, at a Mm -hmm. level where it would appeal to people who might read the New Yorker, but Mm -hmm. who aren't business junkies necessarily. And he hired Hugo Lindgren, um, who is a good friend of mine and who had edited at least one of my stories at New York Magazine. And then Hugo asked me to come on as a features editor. And um, I was extremely – I was torn about it, to be honest, because I had never really read Business Week and I was a little – You know, I was a little bit freaked out by Bloomberg at that moment, too. I didn't know much about it, but it seemed like a really odd place for me to go and work. Uh But, of course, after I talked to them, the whole idea seemed kind of cool and exciting.
3: So when did you first think about writing about Stephen Cohen or SAC or this era of hedge funds? You had worked in a sort of almost previous era of hedge funds in a way.
5: Well, yeah, I'd worked in sort of the early, like the adolescent period of Mm -hmm. the hedge fund evolution. And then it kind of grew up into this huge, like, Dominant industry. Um, well, there was a very specific moment. It was actually, you know, I was doing. Um, I tended to again want to do the, like stories about big controversial people, or anytime there was like a scandal or a big investigation or whatever, I was yep. drawn to those. And I and I wrote a lot of profiles too, really interesting, colorful business people, and yeah. I love doing that. The Ashley Madison guy. Yeah, the Ashley Madison. That's it. The, way before the hack. Oh yeah, like, that was the. That was a very. I remember fine, reading weird that at one. the time. Yeah, it was. Um, Well, there was a moment in um, kind of the end of 2012 when the FBI went down to Florida and arrested a former employee of SAC Capital, which Mm -hmm. was Stephen Cohen's hedge fund. And um, just to quickly sum up, I mean, Stephen Cohen was one of the most successful hedge fund founders of all time. He he, I had even heard about him when I worked at a hedge fund myself, but um, he was this iconic figure on Wall Street. I mean, really one of the big stars. His fund had more than $15 billion in it at its peak. And he had these incredible returns. Like for years, he just made um, thirty, forty, fifty percent every year. Mm-hmm. And he'd only had one year where his fund lost money, which was 2008. So he had this remarkable track record, and people were just obsessed with him, and he had become so, so wealthy. and, and you know, no one fully understand how that happened. but um, a lot of it had to do with just the fact that hedge funds had proven to be really effective vehicles for enrichment of people, Managing the hedge funds because they had these really high fees. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it had just become over the course of you know my time in that industry and even the time I was in journalism, it had started off as this little sideshow startup scene, and it became like the main event of Wall Street. But um, they're lightly regulated, and no one really knew what they were up to. It was not transparent. Yeah. So anyway, there was this whole kind of crazy hidden, but incredibly profitable, powerful <laughs> world. And all these huge hedge fund managers were emerging as huge political donors, too. I mean, they they would end up with a $10 billion personal fortune, and then they would start, you know, at some point they want to pick the president.
3: Yeah, and they, in the art world, you'd come across them. That was, the, I was experienced as a news consumer of, like, just coming across the name Stephen Cohen, like, buying a Picasso, and, like, the whole thing with, like, the Picasso got ripped. Like, I remember reading that story, and... But not really knowing, like, who is this person? Like, how did this person make all this money? It's just a name that would just emerge all the time. It would be in the business pages. But I didn't understand what was behind it.
5: Most people didn't. They kind of came out of nowhere. But they were immensely powerful. I mean, much more powerful in a way than even sort of like the CEO of Goldman Sachs. You know, um, the CEO of Goldman Sachs might make $50 million in a year. Well, the top hedge fund people make uh, more than a billion Every year, you know, that's what happened. And it was just stunning. You know, I've always thought like we should at least be aware of this incredible influence that has been gathered up in this tiny corner of the financial world. I I think most people don't really even know it exists. But at the end of 2012, there had been this big insider trading investigation going on. And it had been like in the Wall Street Journal and in the papers. And they'd arrested this hedge fund manager named Raj Rajaratnam. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why, but I personally, journalistically, had not been that interested in it until this moment. And it was like November 2012. The FBI went down to Boca Raton, Florida, and they arrested this former SAC Capital portfolio manager, uh, just like dragged him out of his house in handcuffs. And one of my editors at Businessweek came up to me and said, you realize this is all about Steve Cohen. Like this whole thing is kind of converging around Steve Cohen. It's really obvious they're going after him. And I was sort of like, what? What do you know? But, of course, you would then like you kind of read the uh, case against this guy, Matthew Martoma, his name is. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to connect it to Cohen. Cohen had was his boss at the time the alleged crime occurred. Right. So it did. It started to become clear from what the government was doing that actually Steve Cohen was sort of the ultimate target. And there Steve Cohen was with his enormously powerful huge hedge fund in um, Stamford, Connecticut and then, you know, that that's the moment when, as a reporter, I kind of like the light went on and I thought, holy cow, like the government is gearing up to go after this really powerful, wealthy financier, like kind of an icon of the industry that I started out in. Mm-hmm. And that's when I thought, well, this is going to be a really interesting, juicy story, but also it's going to be important. Like the government, the SEC, the FBI kind of versus – hedge fund billionaire. That's going to be kind of a story with public value. Yeah. So how did
3: you start to attack that story? Because again, we're talking about something that was, I mean, that Raj case was all over. I mean, there's financial journalists on the Daily Beat trying to get everyone in these. So how did you say, okay, now I'm going to start reporting on this?
5: Well, again, my colleague, Brian, um, the same one who had said, although, oh, you know, they're really going after Steve Cohen, he is the one who kind of said, you should do a story now about this guy, Martoma, and his case and Steve Cohen. And I, I remember <laughs> arguing with him and saying, no, it's too hard. Like, I and I don't say that very often. Actually, I really don't mind things that are hard. But this just seemed like impossible. And I remember him saying, Sheila, like, just get in there. There's going to be a huge story. I remember him specifically saying, you're going to be on TV all the time talking about it. Like, it's going to be a huge <laughs> career move for you to get into this, and you should really do it. And he kind of pushed me. And I kept saying, no, let's assign it to so-and-so, and I'll edit it. You know, but I mean, that's the thing with stories like this. You just have to start. You just start. You just – anyone you can think of, you just start reporting and um, – I ended up doing over the next few weeks, like a cover story for Business Week about the SEC's investigation of this Martoma case, mm-hmm. and that was a kind of a way in. You know, you have to kind of look at what the different possible little roots in are, and obviously, yeah, Steve Cohen isn't going to invite you in and say, "Well, yeah, come in, I'll tell you everything." So, so you just look at, uh, you know, who are the other actors in the story, and can I kind of glom onto one of them or piece together what they're doing? And I did manage to kind of report this story where. Um, This term black edge was introduced and uh, someone told me that there had been an email sent around SAC Capital that had become a piece of evidence in this case. But this wasn't public yet at the time Mm -hmm. where someone had said, oh, this guy had black edge. And I thought, well, what is black edge? That's kind of interesting. So I just started calling people I knew in the hedge fund world and saying, do you know what this term is, black edge? And I remember a lot of people had not heard of it. But I learned about the word edge, which is a very common term on Wall Street, and it's used to refer to your piece of information that you have that is going to help you make money. It's not necessarily illegal inside information. It's just like your little bit of intelligence or the little thing you figured out that gives you an edge on a particular stock so you can kind of make money trading it.
3: Yeah. You know something that the market doesn't. Not necessarily you've gotten it illegally, but you know something. That's
5: right. Now, of course, it's very difficult to actually find out something that the market doesn't know when you think about how many thousands of hedge fund traders, like, you know, the best, brightest minds of our society from MIT and Wharton and Stanford Business School are all out there trying to get edge, you know, in their different whatever field that they're in, um, whatever type of investing they're doing, they're all out there trying to get it. So the competition is just tremendous. And I remember saying to people, well, how... (laughs) Like how is any kind of edge really legal? And but they but everyone was adamant like it's not illegal. It's just like your little your special little thing that you have. So apparently inside SAC Capital there was a term black edge that a small group of people used, and it basically referred to edge that was clearly inside information. Mm-hmm. So um so as soon as I kind of heard that okay so there was it was like known within the firm that there was a thing called black edge and that this guy who's been charged maybe had it. It did sort of hint at this, um, the possibility at least, of a broader kind of cultural problem at the firm. And that was clearly what the government thought at that time. And from that moment on, the whole thing just sort of snowballed, you know, into this huge news story.
3: Yeah. And so you wrote the Businessweek story and then presumably did you sign up to do the book after that story came out?
5: Yes. It was a few months after that. And um, I had been thinking about trying to do a book for a while, like probably every journalist. And I'd been trying to come up with a good idea. And um, I'd had various ideas that didn't work out. But this actually, once I wrote that story, and I got like a lot of positive feedback on it, and and also the events kept going, like it was clearly getting bigger, the whole thing. I remember thinking, you know what, this is really the characters in the story are really interesting. There's Steve Cohen, there's all his employees, like these really ambitious, like aggressive young guys like working for him. There are FBI agents. There's Preet Bharara, the U.S. attorney, like this really ambitious, like, you know, but prominent prosecutor. There's the little eggheads at the SEC, like, doing all the, like, difficult work of trying to connect the dots. With, you know, with no all, real
3: resources or support for actually taking on these people.
5: No respect, you know. <laughs> and, um, you know, there was a sense that the people doing the investigation, never, no one ever felt like they were getting the credit they deserved. And that's always very helpful to journalists when you have people who feel underappreciated and they feel like, well, this other person like Preet's getting all the attention,
3: uh-huh.
5: you know. Um,
3: <laughs> He's holding the press conferences and in, I did all the work. The, there thing. was
5: definitely that. Like every little group involved felt like they were underappreciated compared to the other group. So there was like this little dynamic of kind of tension. Like, But but also they were working together, too. So it was funny. Um, but one
3: thing I wondered at that point, did you feel like if they don't take down Stephen Cohen, it's going to hang me out to dry because there's not
5: going to be enough I was, of course, worried about that. And through the whole rest of that year, there was this kind of huge buildup of tension in the press in particular. The the media was obsessively following the case for the same reasons I was interested, which was like, oh, my God, Steve Cohen might be taken down by this like a huge deal. So there were tons of journalistic interest, like every tabloid, even foreign media. Everybody was obsessed with it. Will they or won't they? Are they going to charge him? Is he going to jail? You know, and his investors were starting to take their money out of his hedge fund. Like there was this panic around Cohen. And um, of course, this is something I really thought about a lot, partly because I, when I went around to meet with various book publishers to talk about the possibility of doing this book, people generally were really interested and into the idea. But they all asked about that. What happens if they don't get him? Mm-hmm. And um, I thought that through because I certainly didn't have any huge expectation that they would get him. It was very unclear to me. And even if they charged him, it was, again, unlikely that he would have ended up going to jail. You know, it just seemed like a total long shot. And I remember saying to them, well, even if they don't get him, it's still like, a really significant, interesting story. And they will probably get this other guy who's been arrested and charged. And there'll be a trial. Like there will be some sense of closure at the mm-hmm. end. Um, there was certainly a sense at that time that Matthew Martoma, who's one of the central characters in the book, his case looked really bad. So a lot of legal experts felt like there was a very good chance he would end up getting convicted. So I remember saying to these publishers, well, you know, at a minimum, we'll have Martoma. Like, you know, that that will be a nice arc. And a couple people felt too concerned about the possibility that Steve Cohen might end up swimming away at the end. And, uh, you know, like O.J. Simpson style, not to compare them. <laughs> but, you know, there were people who brought, drew that comparison and they were worried about that being an unsatisfying ending and I think that was a legitimate concern. But I would say you know, 90% of the people I spoke with could appreciate the significance of the story beyond just whether the guy goes off to jail at the end. I mean, mm-hmm. in a way, it's not as neat and tidy, obviously. Like in the Hollywood version, yeah, he goes to jail. But I do think that it is a story of our time. The way it ends, there's this sort of sense that like, oh, the bad guys or their perceived bad guys kind of win in the end. Yeah. and. Yeah. Um, And we have had this long period where just no one has been prosecuted for financial crime at a high level. Like, it's just become a thing that's beyond the reach of law enforcement. Yeah. If you're rich enough, if you are really rich enough, you've managed to work the system and kind of extract that much for yourself. You are just in a whole other category. You are untouchable. And this was not always the case in America, but it seems to be the case now. So I really feel like this Cohen story is the story of our time in a way. Um,
3: And in another sense, too, because it's like... If you read the book, by the end, you sort of feel like everyone knows what's going on here. Like, by the end, they all know. But he's he is untouchable. Like, they can't prove it. They can't prove it unless they can get someone near him to flip and say, yes, he yep. knew about this. But, like, no one here is really in any doubt about what happened here.
5: Certainly, if you privately ask many of these people, they would all say, oh, my God, we all, you know, we all really felt like there was a certain amount of guilt here, or he should have at least been aware of what the other people who worked for him were doing. But yeah, I mean, that um, in the end, the story exposes the flaws in the system. Because it is extremely hard to prosecute this really complex financial crime. The economy has evolved in such a way that a lot of The things that do occur are incredibly complex. I mean, Wall Street in particular has just been moving in the direction of increasing complexity, and that's really helpful to them because it's hard to even understand uh, what they're doing. And um, there are people who feel that the government was over aggressive or overreached in these cases that I write about, and there's some truth to that too. But the fact is that they are really outmatched. I mean, you end up, Mm -hmm. you have like the SEC or you have the whole Department of Justice team working on this. On one side of a table, and then you have on the other side of the table, like a line of defense lawyers who are maybe making fifteen hundred dollars an hour, who are have twenty years more experience. You know, who who ten or fifteen years ago had the jobs of the government people on the other side of the table, and they've since moved on to the private sector. And um, there's like eight of them and then an army of um, paralegals and assistants and researchers and investigators behind them. Like, they have so much. It's literally like money is no object when it comes to spending on defense yeah. for these white collar defendants. Yeah. And when you just look at it on that level, the government is totally outmatched in a way, even though they have a tremendous amount of power. I mean, the FBI can go and get permission to wiretap you. That's a tremendous amount of power. and. They're just kind of outwitted at so many different points with this. Yeah. And, um, and I, I mean, I just think there's a worrying lesson in it as a society. You know, is, that, is this a fair system? You know, if you, if you are a low-level drug dealer, you are very likely to go to jail. Mm-hmm. And um, if you are a financial criminal operating at the highest levels, just to look around at the world, it's, it seems that you are beyond the reach of the law. Mm-hmm. So.
3: Now, you mentioned it being complex. And one thing I wanted to ask you about was there's obviously you have to strike a balance between a lot needs to be explained in the book, both concepts that are maybe like simple stock market concepts like shorting a stock or something, but then extremely complex ways in which these worlds operate. And what was your approach in terms of trying to fit in explanation into something that's fundamentally you want to be a, a, a riveting narrative?
5: Well, that was the um, fundamental question of the entire kind of book writing process for me. How can I bring this story to as wide an audience as possible? Like an average person far away from New York City who just likes a good yarn, but who will also learn about all these incredibly complex and important dynamics um, in our economy. I mean, that was my goal. And it was tricky. I, I, It's hard to even explain how I did it. It was like months and months of struggle and studying other people who were good at this. I had various stacks of books that I would just look at over and over again um, because they were so well done. And those mm-hmm. those books had accomplished this. But it was really hard. I had to kind of explain even what a hedge fund was and why yeah. this was important. And there's potential for that to be really, really boring. And um, there are some people who know what a hedge fund is, and then they've read that little Wikipedia 101 explanation of it a million times. And then there are other people who have no clue and don't want to read the Wikipedia entry about it. You know, it was it was really painful. But um And
3: well, I I think it I think it worked out. <laughs> well that's <laughs> nice of you. I don't even know. I feel
5: like I would if I could write it again, I would write it completely differently. But Well,
3: you can't, yeah. obviously as you say you can't you can't please every reader. Somebody who's works at a hedge fund is going to say like okay, okay, and maybe yeah. go through those passages, but you're trying to somehow get down the middle of making it accessible to people. I think it accomplishes that. I can say because I didn't, I didn't, I was fascinated with Stephen Cohen, uh, but I didn't know really what was going on, and now I feel fundamentally like I understand what Stephen Cohen does or did or p- possibly will do again. But I had another question about the the sources because you have this like very it seems like very carefully composed note on sources at the end and you also have a, it's like a footnoted book um but one of the things you say in the note and sources is a lot of these people if not most of these people spoke on background because they either could lose their jobs or they had non non-disclosure agreements or what have you and then it says something like you should not assume that because someone's interior thoughts are described that means that they spoke to me and what was the process like of trying to piece together what people were thinking and feeling at the time when no one would go on the record about it?
5: Uh, well, a few people went on the record, but, yeah, the vast majority wouldn't. And But they had very good reasons to not go on the record because, yeah, you had a group of people who kind of worked in the hedge fund world who um, were possibly under threat of prosecution, some mm-hmm. of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is a very good reason not to to want your name uh, there. There were people working for the government who were not allowed to talk. Um It was a very difficult (laughs) process. Of course, everyone was concerned about it being obvious that they were the source of something. So I had to, you know, it was a constant negotiating with people.
3: How did those conversations go? Do you did you because I always wonder about this, too. You don't you don't want to go in. I feel like sometimes I don't want to go in saying we can do this on background if you want, because then they'll take it when they might not have. But yeah. then you also don't want to lose them by them yeah. thinking that they don't have that option. Like, what is yep. the conversation? How do you do that negotiation?
5: Well, that so that same question comes up anytime I write an article. Mm-hmm. And um, you have to be strategic to some extent, I, I think. And that's part of something you learn just over time doing this over and over again. But you kind of think about the context. So, you know, if you're doing a magazine piece and... There's a possibility this person will be okay. You know, you can kind of evaluate their situation and say, well, you know, they might actually be willing to be on the record. That's always uh, your first choice, of course, is that I want you on the record. But um, you then have to weigh off, like, what is the value of the information they have to share with you versus what you're giving up by offering them the ability to go on background. To be honest with this type of investigative book. Where the stakes are so high for everyone involved. I mean, I was reporting this while the story was still going on. It was not a thing that I was piecing together after the fact. It was Mm -hmm. literally happening on a day-to-day basis. You can really understand why people would need to be afforded the opportunity to be anonymous. I mean, you just could not do journalism like this without that. So I would often just offer that up front Mm -hmm. and... um, it was helpful that I was working on a book. I mean, I did do some reporting about this at Business Week at the time. And I did go on TV a lot during those, like, really busy few months, like, when there were a lot of news breaks in the story. But for the most part, I was gathering information for this longer-term project. So I think that gave a lot of people comfort. People who are reading things sometimes that were even wrong in the daily press about this stuff, you know, then there I was um, – you know, my seventh meeting with them uh-huh. uh, working on my book. And I think that they uh, took comfort in the fact that this would be coming out like in a couple of years. It wasn't something that was going to come out and affect the investigation. I mean, a lot of the people involved were very worried about influencing the outcome because they were trying to do things the right way. And there were all these leaks. And I mean, it was sort of shocking how much stuff leaked out during the investigation that actually messed up other parts of the investigation mm-hmm. or, or even um, – really compromised the privacy of some of the like defendants or even people who were never charged with anything got their reputations completely sort of damaged in the press because there were leaks that they were you know targets or they were this or they had something was about to happen and it never happened and those people are all very angry still and I don't blame them so all that was going on there was like this hysterical sort of like frenzy of leaking and you know, often the Wall Street Journal would print that something was going to happen three days before it actually did happen. And I was just just observing this, I could almost predict, OK, the journals get, you know, sometimes I would know about things before they happened because I had been told for my book. But I was not necessarily going to publish any of that. But then the journal would have it, you know. Like,
3: uh-huh.
5: And um.
3: <laughs> but then you were kind of hovering above and you could then watch the consequences yes. of that information leaking out and just fold that back into. That's
5: it. Well, what that was doing. that was really interesting. Um. But I think when you're working on a book, it, it, um, it gives people a, a level of comfort with your project that they might not have
0: mm-hmm.
5: with, yeah, a Wall Street Journal reporter who's going to literally, if you like wink at them, they're going to like publish something right away and it might then like alter the outcome, you yeah. know? Um, so that was helpful.
3: Okay. So let's talk about Stephen Cohen himself. Did you think that he would talk to you?
5: Well, you know, I, of course, always prefer to have access to the very central figures in any story I'm working on. But there are so many stories you just cannot do if that is your condition. I will only do this with full access. You just I mean, all the president's men would never have been written. Uh, The looming tower would not exist. Okay, you just can't do it. So, of course, I tried to talk to him, but I never had any expectation that he would talk, partly because he was under a legal cloud mm-hmm. and all the suspicion uh, during most of the time I was working on this. And I knew because m- – mostly because I just spent so much time um, with lawyers on all sides of the story. There's no way his attorneys would have allowed him to talk. I mean I, it's completely understandable. And, of course, at the time that I was reporting this book, the FBI was trying to talk to him. You know, they were sending him subpoenas, and he was refusing to—at one point, they sent him a subpoena to come in and testify, and he refused. He took the fifth. (laughs) So, of course, if he's taking the fifth to the government, why on God's earth is he going to sit down with me and say, well, let me just tell you everything? So I knew it wasn't going to happen, and, of course, I had to factor that into my decision to write the book, but— you know the questions i really wanted answered were were going to be off limits anyway because again for the same legal reasons like what yeah. really happened in july of 2008 with he's this not trade he like
3: admit something to you that he's just gotten off uh, not being prosecuted for by the fbi he and wouldn't, the us attorney's office he
5: wouldn't tell the sec under oath during a deposition what happened yeah. on x date why is he going to tell me it just made no sense it was never going to happen but there were so many interesting supporting characters in yeah. the story There were FBI agents. There was the U.S. attorney and all his, like, brilliant um, prosecutors working for him. And then there were all these kind of really colorful, funny, interesting, craven, like, hedge fund traders (laughs) who had passed through SAC who are still there. So many of them were just witty and sharp and profane and smart and (laughs) scrappy. And, like, I just love talking to them. I mean, some of them I just wish I could have – published a transcript of them talking about what they did all day because it was just so interesting.
3: Do you have a sense of how the book has been received inside that world?
5: I mean, a lot of people who work in the hedge fund world have contacted me and many of them have said, like, you nailed it. Or, you know, there are a few people who have had angry reactions and felt that I was too mean to the hedge funds and too forgiving of the governments. And it's true that the government did make some mistakes. And there are some very bitter kind of Wall Street people. You know, uh, for example, at one point, the government went and raided a bunch of hedge funds, like literally FBI agents went into these hedge funds and carted out, you know, people's cell phones and so on. And a lot in a lot of those cases, it never really led to anything. Mm -hmm. And those people are so mad. I mean, the funds ended up having to shut down and they are really mad and feel that there was serious prosecutorial overreach. And of course, I showed all this. I didn't shy away from showing it, but I didn't go out of my way to kind of make a lecture about why it was bad. It seemed very obvious to me that that was, you know, not an ideal way to, you know, there were some mistakes made by the government for sure. You know, a lot of people who who work and kind of traffic in information and trade the market every day, many of them feel perhaps justifiably that kind of everyone is doing this. And that it is too easy um, for the government to kind of criminalize what is, in their view, kind of normal behavior. Mm -hmm. And there are some people who say, well, it's really too hard for us to even know when we're crossing the line and when we're not. And that is a valid legal question. There is some gray area around insider trading law. So there are some cases where people are getting information like third or fourth hand. They don't necessarily know where it comes from. So some traders have said, well, it's just not fair that they can kind of go and put us in jail or just ruin our lives when um, we're just doing our jobs and, like, everyone else is doing this too. Now, I don't necessarily feel that that's a valid defense. (laughs) And um, Harvey Pitt, who is a former chairman of the SEC, who was interviewed in a frontline documentary about the case that I was also um, a part of, Mm -hmm. he had this great quote where he said (laughs) – You know, anyone who says they don't really know inside information when they see it, he says if you're a hedge fund manager of any experience or reputation at all, you know it when you see it.
3: When you write about these hedge funds, Stephen Cohen, people like that, it's like this proximity to extreme wealth. And like you're operating in journalism, which is like can make a living at journalism, you know, sometimes a good living. But how does it make you feel to report on that, I mean, it's extraordinarily extravagant. And there's a kind of undercurrent in the book of sort of like, why? Like, why more? Why? What does he want? And like, the art buying and the planes and the sports teams. And like, what is it all actually about? And I'm just wondering, like, how do you feel about having that proximity?
5: I am very intrigued by the way that That level of wealth, because it is really for many of these huge, like kind of titans of Wall Street people uh, who I write about a lot, they are so wealthy. It is kind of it is a scale beyond anything we've really seen, except for maybe some like huge major tech company founders. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are people who became multi billionaires in a relatively short period of time, often at a young age. Not by inventing a product that everyone uses, not by inventing a life-saving medicine, not by even employing very many people, not by building a huge company, not by laying a railroad like the robber barons of the, you know, twenties or whatever. They literally have amassed these enormous fortunes through speculation. So I mean, and many of them are just kind of these rough-edged, they're very smart, but they're often eccentric guys, they're almost all men, who were really good at math or whatever it was and, like, rode this to this incredible success or incredibly ambitious. And that kind of wealth affects a person's um, outlook and attitude. And I think in some cases it it does lead to a sort of um, – sense that they are God. I mean, it's interesting to see many of them try and go into politics or try, you know, like hedge funds are very involved in like the charter school movement, for example. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just interesting to me to see these people. They become incredibly wealthy through financial speculation, basically. And suddenly they think they know how to fix the education system in America and they want everyone to listen to them because they have this money to put behind the problem. Sort of God complex. So that's interesting to me. That also leads to some of the arms race you see in the spending, like the art and the the mansions. Because I think many people in that sort of strata of the economy feel like they don't want the same stuff as everyone else has. They should have some other level of life experience (laughs) down to everything, down to their car, their helicopter, the art on their wall, whatever it is. Like they have an expectation of – Um, having this like rarefied other version of the world and I, I think that is increasingly leading to this sort of like parallel society that we live in where like they have a whole other separate world where they live and their kids go to school and they go on vacations and how they get around you know, by helicopter with never even touching the sidewalk with the with the civilians. Yeah. And um, but but then meanwhile, though, they're trying to deploy their resources to affect the civilian world that we all live in because mm-hmm. they think they know how to fix everything. And um, I think people need to know that that's going on. It's often behind the scenes. Um. I would also just add that I think it was tremendously helpful that I worked in that world before because I'm just not as impressed by it.
3: Yeah, that's kind of me. what I was getting at.
5: Yeah, like, but no, I'm really not. I mean, of course, it's, uh, it's, it's dazzling to be exposed to that type of sort of wealth and riches and so on. But I'm really not that impressed. Like if I hear some hedge fund guy made $8 million last year, that's not, like I, I have some perspective on that. It's not that much... Uh, and it just doesn't impress me the same way. And I think it really helps me to talk with people who work in that world because, I, I I mean I do understand it on another level from most people who write about it. I think, and it's just that's been tremendously helpful.
3: Yeah. And so, do you feel like you? I've I've seen you've written uh, more recently about you know the the sort of intersection of these worlds in terms of the Trump administration and it's like you know Goldman Sachs in the White House over there. So does it feel like uh, now is a time when, like, that knowledge and that reporting you build up in that world is actually bleeding in? I mean, there's always been this Wall Street political, like, people, Hillary Clinton, like, what are the speeches, all that sort of stuff. But does it feel like you're kind of orienting that a little bit more in a political direction or you don't want to go too far into political reporting?
5: No, I definitely um, am. You know, it's very connected for Mm -hmm. me and it always has been. I mean, that level of money buys political influence. The country and the world is uh, the way it is because of the enormous outsized influence of money and big money interests in Washington. And that's been true for a long time, but it's just becoming more and more true every year. And I think... That is exactly the dynamic that led to Trump being elected president because there's been this enormous kind of wealth extraction among this really small group of people. But the rest of the economy has been kind of neglected and left to wither. And most people's earnings have not gone up at all increasingly companies are trying to like make money without actually creating any jobs or manufacturing anything. I mean, they're doing all these different like mm-hmm. engineering tricks. I mean, every company on some level wants to be like a hedge fund now and just make money out of money. Like we've we've turned into an economy yeah. where y- people just make money out of money.
3: And you've got, you've written, like you wrote about the sharing economy through the lens of car, you know, the Uber and this new Juno. Juneau. And then also Herbalife has a, well, there's a sort of element of that too. Where yes. it's like, there's we're really make, there at the bottom.
5: No, we're just going to make money out of money. And if you already have a billion dollars, it's a lot easier to make money out of that than if you're starting with nothing. <laughs> right. And uh, and where does that leave everyone else? Well, there are just there aren't enough jobs. You know, there aren't companies investing, doing the hard work of investing in infrastructure, like building plants, making them. You know, everyone just wants the the fastest route to riches you can possibly come up with, and um, You know, I think also people don't even realize, but a lot of companies that are kind of pulling back on doing research or like long term investing or even developing new drugs, they are often influenced by their shareholders who are often these hedge fund people who have amassed these huge chunks of these companies and are just kind of trading around them on their earnings. You know, they're not they're not long term investors, so they're all being influenced by this like short term kind of profit seeking motive. And it has an effect. I mean, it trickles down to the rest of the economy. And yeah, of course, it's it's revealing that Trump was, I think, elected partly because people are so frustrated and upset about how unfair the system seems to be and how broken it seems to be. But he's also at the same time now brought in all these same financiers to, to run everything. I mean, it's just incredible. It's stunning development.
3: Are you a person who feels like exposing it uh, can change it?
5: Um, that's a good question. I don't want to sound too cynical. um, But I think, you know, I think you just have to constantly remind people that this is going on. You have to constantly keep telling the story over and over. And I think it also happens to be the case that those stories are some, you know, better than fiction. I mean, you cannot make this stuff up. They are just they're good stories they are juicy good stories if you're someone who wants to do storytelling and also serve a really valuable educational purpose in our society this is a rich world
3: well Sheila thank you very much for coming on the podcast
5: thanks for having me it was very fun
3: that's it for this week's long form podcast I'm your co-host Evan Ratliff thanks to Sheila Kohatkar for coming in her book is called Black Edge our editor this week was Mickey Kapper thanks Mickey our intern is Courtney Harrell. And my co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Our sponsors are Blue Apron, Stamps.com, and as always, MailChimp. We'll see you next week.
1: Why do you run? Why does anyone You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.
0: The Current Podcast is back with an exciting new season featuring marketing executives from the world's most influential brands.